So please allow yourself to sit in a way that's comfortable and at ease and listen and don't try to remember much of this. Um, may not be that memorable anyway, but um, it's a different kind of listening, really, um, for Dharma teachings. Uh, there's a kind of listening that's not like listening to a lecture where you have an exam and you'll get a grade at the end. Um, but it's listening to feel what resonates as true, um, what reminds the heart of some wisdom that we already know and carry. And then maybe listening as well with an ear of what's not true, what to let go of, what's not helpful. A kind of inner knowing that you trust and rest in that my teacher Ajahn Chah called the one who knows inside. So I'm happy to be back. I spent uh, the last week in Florida, um, which someone called the Benares of America, (laughs) partly because like Benares, there are a lot of people there who go and prepare to die, actually. Interesting. And some of it was a family visit, uh, visiting my 97-year-old Aunt Ellen in northern Florida, who's um, quite clear and vital and so forth at 97, thinking about things she has yet to do with her life. That's interesting. (laughs) Visiting my wife's mom, who's, she's only 89. And had moved into, we'd helped her move into assisted living. So there was this whole process of letting go of the house and all the various things. And she thought she would be quite isolated in this assisted living, but she's on her second boyfriend now. (laughs) She had one for a while. He was 90, and then she dumped him. She got this new guy who's 92. So, I mean, you know, things carry on. And then I went and was part of a wedding on the beach in the, Florida Keys. Yesterday I was in the Florida Keys, as a matter of fact. Um, and uh, that was interesting as well, because dear friends and their, their oldest daughter who's getting married. And in all of this, it was like the cycles of beginnings and endings, because um, yesterday morning I was in the Florida Keys for this wedding, and last night I went to the 50th wedding anniversary dinner for Sylvia Borstein and Seymour Borstein, Sylvia who teaches here, many of you know. They had their 50th wedding anniversary. And one of the best toasts at it was a, a man who stood up and uh, introduced himself as one of their oldest friends. He's known them for a very, very long time. And he said, in fact, I was the best man at their wedding. Um, he said, but in, in the form of wedding we did then, we didn't do toasts. So I feel that it's now important to do a toast a little bit belated, 50 years later, and raised his glass and gave this wonderful 50-year-later toast to them. And I could just feel the different seasons of people's lives, um, my own included, being there in Florida and coming back. And there is um, change and letting go and new things and old. And what's the line from Bob Dylan? He who's not busy being born is busy dying. Only, I mean, I like Bob Dylan a lot, but I think he got the line a little wrong um, because we're always both busy being born and busy dying. It's 
kind of the simultaneous processing. Here's this beautiful wedding, and, and they're about to go off on their honeymoon, and everybody's happy and excited in a certain way. And at the same time, mom is crying like, well, my daughter isn't going to be around so much anymore. And there was a big letting go for certain people in that wedding, as well as a new start for others. And so what I'd like to talk about tonight, which follows in the theme of some of the last weeks for those of you who have been here, is the theme of freedom of heart um, in the Buddhist teaching, um, which is also connected to the fundamental practice of letting go. I'm sure you've heard those words, letting go. And, you know, Leo Tolstoy said, I'm thinking about being in Florida there with the folks that I spend a lot of the time with, he said, old age is one of the most unexpected things that happens to a person, right? (laughs) How could this have happened? I'm about to turn 60. It just doesn't seem right, yeah? (laughs) The importance of letting go and the freedom that it brings is so central to the teachings of the Buddha um, that he writes or said and then it's written in these various discourses and so forth. Just as the great oceans, all four great oceans have but one taste, the taste of salt, so do all the teachings of the Dharma, the teachings of the way of liberation, have but one taste, the taste of freedom, of letting go, opening. And one of the most frequent definitions of enlightenment or liberation, which is not something far away or in another continent, you know, there in India at another, you know, century or kind of the spiritual penthouse of life that you get to, but it's really enlightenment that's possible for us as human beings where we are, is the difference the Buddha describes between the five grasp processes of life, of body and feelings and perceptions, that's all our views about things, and thoughts and our responses and consciousness, we're considered to be five changing processes. Ordinarily, we identify and grasp and hold on to these, my views, my feelings, my opinions, my body, and so forth. That's the unenlightened description. The enlightened description is the same body, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, consciousness. The only difference is that they're not held on to, they're not grasped. So enlightenment isn't far away, and it's not some other place. It is wherever we are. In this very moment, the possibility of enlightenment is here for us when we let go of our grasping and identification and struggle with the world the way we think it should be and can come to this peace of heart in the midst of life as it is. And it's not a passive thing. I remember seeing from friends of mine who do Aikido, these old black and white movies of Oshiba Sensei, who was the founder of the art, martial art of Aikido. And he trained in all the other Japanese martial arts in, in um, you know, I guess it was in karate and in judo and so forth, and was a great master in all of those, and then wanted to make an art that was founded on the principle of harmony and non-harming among people. 
and created the forms of Aikido and then invited the other masters to come and you know, test him to see if it worked because that's, I guess, what one does in that world. Guys, you know, doing their thing, right? <laughs> come and try it out. So in this wonderful old movie, you see a dozen or 15 very large um, guys in bl black belts, you know, masters, all there coming to test Osen Oshiba Sensei. And Oshiba Sensei, long, wispy white beard, about four foot nine or four foot ten, tiny little grandfatherly guy. And these big guys, all well trained and buffed, are coming in to get him, right? And, he, you know, he beckons them, come on, you know, come in. And then you, we slowed the projector down because you want to see how this happens. All of a sudden, these guys go in to attack him, and he sort of smiles and turns around in a little circle, and the next thing you see is all their bodies are on the floor. <laughs> and you, it doesn't even look like he touches them. He just kind of smiles, and they all fall down. <laughs> and then he says, come on, get up, try it again, <laughs> and smiles and turns around, and then they all fall down again. It's really kind of a remarkable image because it gives the image of a freedom of spirit that is not removed from the world, but absolutely in the middle of it. It's the freedom of spirit that I meet when I speak with certain of the men in San Quentin who've been there for 20, 25 years. Um, and as they say, maybe when they were 17, 18, 19 years old, they did something really terrible. Um, they're a really different person now, 25 years later. And there's this tremendous um, understanding and wisdom that's grown in, in some of them that I speak to. It's the freedom of um, it's the freedom of Nelson Mandela when he walked out of prison 27 years later from Robben Island and stood up with so much dignity and graciousness and was untouched by that experience. Or Aung San Suu Kyi, 15 years she's been under house arrest in Burma, 20 years, and still a, an unbent spirit. This from Nisargadat Maharaj, a teacher, guru in Bombay, one of my teachers. He says, pain is physical, suffering is mental. Suffering is due entirely to clinging or resisting. It is a sign of our unwillingness to move on, to flow with life. As a sane life is free of pain, so a wise life is free from suffering. The essence of wisdom is acceptance of the present moment, harmony with things as they happen. A wise person does not want things to be different from what they are. They know that considering all factors, this is what they have. They are friendly with the inevitable, and therefore they do not suffer. Pain they may know, but it does not shatter them. If they can, out of compassion, they do all that's possible to alleviate the suffering of others and restore the balance. And if that's not possible, they let things take their course, but they live from moment to moment in the reality of peace of heart without suffering. So this is the difference, suffering and pain. Pain, everybody knows. Anybody not have pain? And it's just part of woven into our human experience. The teaching of the Buddha is very simple. There is a possibility of freedom from suffering in, within the spirit, within the heart. And it's so simple 
because it says the amount of grasping and resistance and struggle, as Nisargadot points out, equals, is exactly equal to, like one of those equations in chemistry, the amount of suffering that we have. You can measure the amount of suffering by the amount of holding on. Now, that's kind of straightforward, um, but it's not easy because all these different things happen. You know, our, all our money in the stock market and then the stock market doesn't it sometimes and then all this clinging comes or the end of a relationship or the death of a loved one or some loss that's really significant in our life. You know, there's the big things like that or some illness that comes to us. And then there's all the little ones, you know, the person who cuts you off while you're driving and, you know, you could get into the road rage thing. Somebody called me when I was on the Michael Krasny's radio show the other day and talked about that, you know, road rage. And then you could also go, you know, I'm sorry, it's okay, and not get into it and let go. And it has a very different ending. It feels really different. Or the moments, you know, the, where you get something that feels un, you know, unfair from your boss or the way some friend might have mistreated you in some fashion. You know, or there I was in Florida for the week and it rained the whole week. I mean, Florida is supposed to be sunny and beautiful, right? It poured rain. It was stopped a little bit around the wedding time. So I could have gotten really upset and it occurred to me to do that. <laughs> for what? You know, it's not how I want it. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to look at people, especially when we were struggling in the monastery with different things, kind of peer at us and say, are you suffering? <laughs> you know, just a straightforward question. And if you said no, he would smile and say, oh, very good, and kind of walk away. And if you said yes, he said, oh, must be attached, you know, and then smile and walk away and just leave you with your predicament there. He said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you will have a freedom of heart that is your birthright. Oh, nobly born, this is the, the great awakening of the Buddha. And you can let go in this way in any moment. Now, of course, you don't only have to let go. Your computer will do it for you on occasion, right? When it <laughs> crashes and various other things will happen. This from my good friend Ajahn Sumedho, wonderful teacher. He writes, for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking and grasping, worldly or spiritual, you can simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than try to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that, the, the grasping mind wants to read the spiritual sutras and study the Buddhist philosophy and learn Sanskrit and Pali and Madhyamaka and Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana and Mahayana and Vajrayana and write books and become a renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism <clears throat> and being invited to great international conferences, why not just let go? <clears throat> let go. For years I did nothing but this in my practice. Every time I tried to understand and figure it out and change things, I just say let go, let go until the different desires would fade away. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in an incredible amount of suffering. 
There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> Some of you might have the desire to be become the new Buddha of the age, Maitreya, and radiate love throughout the world. Instead, just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go. You see, ours is called the lesser vehicle, <clears throat> Hinayana, and we only have these poverty-stricken practices. <laughs> so you hear the word and feel it and laugh, which is a really good thing, because laughter in itself is a way of perspective and letting go. And there's something that feels true about it, but then there's this little nagging voice that comes, yes, but how do I reconcile letting go with the need for commitment, for dedication, for care in this world? What if I let go of everything? And this is a really important question for people in spiritual life to wrestle with. What does it mean to let go? It's worthwhile to study this. Is attachment bad? Is all attachment bad? Is there such a thing as healthy attachment? What's the difference between attachment and commitment? Cartoon from Calvin and Hobbes. Here's Hobbes, the tiger, speaking to the little boy Calvin. Aren't you supposed to be doing your homework now? They're outside playing in the snow, making a snowman. Hobbes says, I mean, Calvin says, I quit doing homework. Homework is bad for my self-esteem. <laughs> it is, says Hobbes. Sure, it sends the message that I don't know enough. All that emphasis on right answers make me feel bad when I get them wrong. So instead of trying to learn, I'm just concentrating on liking myself as I am. <laughs> Hobbes looks at him. Your self-esteem is enhanced by remaining an ignoramus? <clears throat> Please, I simply call it informationally impaired. <laughs> so how do you let go wisely? What could this mean? And how does one let go and still have the sense of discipline or direction or empowerment? How do you bond with your children if you don't care for them in a, in a way that creates healthy attachment? How do you work for justice or dedicate yourself to an art or to something that you care about? In what way do, does the Buddhist teaching use the word letting go? There's a phrase that you find in the Buddhist text called fortunate attachments or wise attachments. And this speaks about how the heart can meet this moment. Um, the difference between grasping or attachment and commitment. When we grasp and don't let go, we hold on with greed, with aggression, with delusion, with judgment about how things are supposed to be. And out of that, we discover within us the associated states of fear, of anger, of lack of forgiveness. We tell the stories about how he did this and she did that, and how it's supposed to be and how it should be. You know all those stories? So we had some kids from the middle school come. Dear Jack, I got this note in this kind of sweet little middle school handwriting. I came to your meditation center with my school. When I did, I didn't take the meditation seriously. I just wanted to be with my friends until I started to getting into big fights with my parents and myself. I recalled the time we spent meditating, how good it felt because I felt so alone. 
So I took the little knowledge I had about meditating one night after a long fight with my mom and went out on the roof and started to practice and tried to do what you told us. And when I opened my eyes and went back into my house, I was not as mad. I don't know what it is about meditating, but it helps me. But I know it helps me let go of my anger. I thank you a thousand times for this gift. I wish they taught it in school. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? <laughs> then there's the rest of us, right? <laughs> so people come to see me. I remember doing some divorce counseling. It used to be called marriage counseling, but it was divorce counseling. <laughs> <you know. laughs> And these people, and they were, there was so much anger in this couple for oh, lots of it, for a year and a half. And I became curious, because there was a lot of anger in my family. My father was very angry, you know, and he didn't let go easily. He knew how to hold a grudge and things like that. It's kind of a family tradition. Anyway, so I became curious watching them be angry at one another. You know, initially it's one thing, but they were really, you know, into it for a long time. And... And so I just asked this kind of obvious psychological question, um, what are you getting out of this? How does the anger serve you? Um, or another way to flip the question is, what would happen if you let go? And then the people started to reflect and say, well, if we let go, then we'd have to feel how separate we really are. There'd be all the loss and all the grief the anger was kind of the glue. It was the way in my family, my parents made contact, actually. They didn't have a lot of connection. And then they'd get angry, and that was the way of some contact to happen. We'd have to let go. We'd have to actually feel the end. And what would it be like to let go? What Then, instead of making your decisions from the holding on, how about if you listen from this place of letting go, you know, with these questions, who should move, who gets the kids, who's wrong or right, you know, on the moral ground, and instead started to let go and ask, well, what would be good for the children? What would be good for each person in this? You can start to hear, as we know, it's not, it's not an unfamiliar scenario, how much suffering there is from holding on, and the wisdom that comes in letting go. Now, it's absolutely the same process in international relations, if you will, or in our society at large, whether we're talking about um, the U.S. weapon sales around the world, the fact that we're still the number one exporter of weapons because we want all that income. I mean, I think there's another way to run your economy besides selling billions and billions of dollars of killing machines around the world, and then worrying that you're not safe. Um, or if we look at the, um, the kinds of addictions in the society, or we look at the underlying racism and the tremendous amount of suffering that it causes, um, what would have to be let go of? Or the economic injustice and disparity, what would have to be let go of? Or the the racist prison system, or the war between the Israelis and the Palestinians, or, I mean, it could be the Northern Irish Catholics and Protestants, somebody's got to let go, or the suffering will continue. It's just that simple. Not the ideals, 
but the willingness to have a generous heart. And this is really our own spiritual question, because if we can't do it, how could the society at large do it? How does the heart meet this moment with openness, a freedom, a charity? Remember the poem from Rumi where he talks about this being human is a guest house. Treat each guest honorably. As we sit and meditate, we are training ourselves in this process of respectful attention, of bowing to what's so, a kind of sacred presence. And that's a kind of letting go or letting be. I remember my very good friend, Robert Hall, who is a teacher here at Spirit Rock and a psychiatrist, was in practice for 40-some years. And I remember when I first met Robert, and I'd finished my PhD in clinical psychology and was working with people, and Robert had been around for a long time already, I'm talking about working in this role as a psychologist. And I said, I've gotten pretty good at seeing the suffering and the problems that people have, kind of like diagnostics, if you will. Um, But I'm not always sure how best to help them change and so forth. And he looked at me and he said, well, I don't do that. And I was really surprised. He said, I, I said, you don't? He said, no. He said, what I do is sit with the person and help them to sense and feel and see what's true. That's all I do. And in that, whatever needs to change comes of itself. If we really feel it and sense it and see it. It's like Martin Luther King, who said the approach, our approach of love and nonviolence doesn't change the oppressor. It does something more fundamental first. It changes the heart of the person who's involved in the conflict yourself. And by doing so, it changes the entire situation. To be free inside, in all the conditions of the world, because there are tough conditions, there are injustices and sufferings that will come to us that aren't fair, I could ask how many people have experienced those, but I don't have to. But some of you more than others, some of you in really grave ways. And there are things that change that we wish with all our heart and soul and might wouldn't. But to be free and awake and compassionate where we are with the circumstances of life as they are, to live is to be, is to be alive, to live in the reality of the present and not in some fantasy about how it should be. And it takes a great courage, but also it's a beautiful gift because the more that we learn to be free, the more we extend or offer or show or shine this freedom for others. It's the freedom again of Nelson Mandela or whoever you want to think of in that way. Because all our time, past and future, is taken care of when we can learn to live freely here and now in the reality of the present. Here and now is the only place you can love. To love in the past is just a memory. And to love in the future is a fantasy. It might be a good one, but it's just imagined. The only place you can actually love, the smell of a bay tree or the eyes of a child or your lover or or something that you care about in this world, the art or the the music or the 
you know, the coming together of people in an honorable way, the only way we can really love is to love where we are. And this transforms our life, frees us. So this is the first step, to be with what's true. And when we can be with what's true, bow to it, see it, open to it, then we can tend what needs to be tended. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, there's problems in the world, but here we are. Let us accept what's so. Even the troubles and the great difficulties, can I be with these and see them clearly and honestly? With an open heart, with a peaceful mind. And now, what is my response? Then we can tend it. So how do you tend? What direction? Instead of attachment, the teaching in Buddhist psychology speaks of dedication, of commitment. And the commitment doesn't have to do with even knowing how things are supposed to be. Because a lot of times we really don't know. Speaking of enlightenment, said Zen Master Dogen, it is like your boat on the ocean where you cannot see the shore. The ocean seems circular and nothing else. But the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It's like a jewel. Only for a moment, from one point of view, does it seem round. Everything is like this. We don't really know where we are. We can't see the shore in our life. It's simply unfolding in this great, mysterious way. And a lot of times, unexpected things will happen. So then, what do we dedicate ourselves to? How do we guide ourselves? One of the simplest and most profound teachings in the Buddhist tradition is the vows of the Bodhisattva, is the power of intention. In some way, you could say most of Buddhist teaching is really about intention. What is the intention of the heart that we set to live go, as we go down this unknown stream of life? And the intention of the Bodhisattva vows is simple. Even if the sun should arise in the West, which is a pretty radical thing, right? Even if the sun c- comes up the other side of the world, the Bodhisattva has only one way, to act for the benefit of all beings. I vow, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to awaken them all. Desires are inexhaustible, I vow to release them all. The dharmas are boundless, I vow to master them all. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to attain it. These kind of vows. The most simple thing is that no matter what happens, my response in the world will be compassion and wisdom for the benefit of all beings. In the midst of praise and blame and gain and loss, This is the setting of the compass of the heart. This is the direction. And it's a um, very powerful direction to set here in this story. Yitzhak Frankenthaler made a speech um, a couple of years ago at a rally in Jerusalem said, my beloved son, Arik, my own flesh and blood, who was always smiling with the innocence of a child and the understanding 
of, of, of a wise spirit was murdered by Palestinian gunmen, my tall, blue-eyed, golden-haired son. And yet, if to hit his killers, innocent Palestinian children and other civilians would have to be killed, if the security forces were to kill innocent Palestinians as well, I would tell them they were no better than my son's killers. Should the security forces have information about his murderer's whereabouts, but should it turn out he was surrounded by even one innocent child, then even if the security forces knew exactly where he was and launched a strike to curb a terror attack that would kill others, I would tell the security forces not to seek revenge, but to avoid and prevent the death of innocent civilians and children, be they Israelis, Palestinian, or anyone else. I would rather have the finger that pushes the trigger or the button that drops the bomb tremble before it kills my son's murderer than for one innocent civilian to be killed in his name. Now that's a letting go, isn't it? Imagine the death of your own child. And yet it's the only way that the world can be sane. It is the only way for us to learn in the end to live with one another. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law, says the Buddha. And this is the compass of the Bodhisattva. And sometimes it seems to work, sometimes it doesn't. As I've said from Thomas Merton, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will achieve no result at all. And as you understand and get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. The truth of what we do. And so every day in monasteries, one can do a reflection on this day. What is my intention with the praise and blame and pleasure and pain that come and gain and loss? Can I respond in a way that will be of benefit? How might I do this? You know, whether it's to plant a garden or create a business or teach in school or work as a healer or, or work as a consultant or whatever you happen to do. You will have situations again and again in your family, with your loved ones, in the neighborhood, and in the world at large. How do I set the compass of my heart to go through this day? And sometimes the smallest things have an enormous impact. Primo Levi, who was a well-known writer, was a Jewish chemist who was sent to Auschwitz. The meager rations given were not enough to sustain life, but he was befriended by a civilian worker, an Italian named Lorenzo, who was working on this project where the Auschwitz prisoners were, were slave laborers. And he wrote, he brought me a piece of bread and the remainder of his ration every day for six months. He gave me a vest of his full of patches. He wrote a postcard on my behalf and brought me the reply. I believe that it was due to Lorenzo that I'm alive today and not so much for his bread and material aid as for his having constantly reminded me by his presence, by his natural and plain manner of being good, 
that there still existed a just world outside our own, something in someone still pure and whole, not corrupt, not savage, extraneous to hatred and terror, something difficult to define, a possibility of good for which it was worth surviving again and again. The smallest thing, the, the, the kindness, the piece of bread, the willingness to commit ourselves with respect to another person, to commit ourselves in love to another person, to freedom, justice, in whatever way strikes your heart as the compass. To do this, which is really to love, takes a lot of letting go. And I standing there, you know, making a toast myself for Seymour and Sylvia's 50th wedding anniversary, and trying to imagine over 50 years how many times one or another of them had to let go. You know how that works, don't you? A happy relationship where, uh, where each partner grants the possibility that the other may be right though neither really believes it, right? <laughs> There's this generosity of heart. <coughs> to love requires letting go. To respect another requires letting go. To be free requires a letting go. Sometimes the letting go are, is grief, and tears are also okay. Isaac Dennison writes, the cure for anything is salt water, sweat, tears, or the sea. And so letting go can mean our grieving and can mean an honorable, you know, willingness to suffer our losses. But in the end, it's the spirit of forgiveness, of allowing people to be who they are with their flaws and their difficulties, to love your crooked neighbor, as Auden says, to love your crooked neighbor with your own crooked heart. <laughs> There's a story I haven't read for a long time, but most of you or many of you come have heard it, but um, it still it fits here, and I haven't read it for a few years. Roberto Di Vincenzo, the famous Argentine golfer who was kind of like Jack Nicklaus in, in Latin America or Arnold Palmer or or Tiger Woods, once won a tournament, and after receiving the check, smiling for the cameras, he went to the clubhouse prepared to leave. Sometime later, he walked to his car in the parking lot and was approached by a young woman who congratulated him on his victory and told him that her child was seriously ill near death. Roberto was so touched by her story, he took out a pen and endorsed his winning check payment to the woman Make some good days for the baby, he said, and pressed the check into her hand. Next week he was having lunch at a country club when one of the officials came up and said, Some of the guys in the parking lot told me about the young woman you met there after the tournament. DiVincenzo nodded. Well, said the official, I have news for you. She's a phony. She's not married, no partner, no sick baby. She fleeced you, my friend. You mean there's no baby who's dying, said De Vincenzo? That's right, said the official. Oh, that's the best news I've heard all week. <laughs> I mean, we do have a choice in the heart, and you can feel it in the story. We do have a choice. 
of what we'll do with gain and loss and praise and blame and pleasure and pain and the things that happen to us. And we can be free, no matter the difficulties, no matter the struggles of our life. There is a freedom that is your birthright, O nobly born. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is there speaking with Arjuna on the great battlefield in India. And at one point it says, I love to say this line, it says the secret, you know, of the secrets, right? The secret to life is to act well without attachment to the results of your actions. To act as beautifully as you can to act with the heart's best intentions without attachment to the fruit because it's not given to you or to me or to us to determine how it will come out, but it is given to us to act with integrity and beauty. As Martin Luther King says, to stand up for the truth is the end of life, not to get praise or not to make money, but to stand up for what the heart most deeply believes in. And oddly enough, this is connected is standing up with the wise art of letting go. Because letting go doesn't mean indifference or not caring or dismissing. It is a commitment to the courage of the heart to turn to what we, what we love and what we know to be true and to offer ourselves to it without grasping. Alan Watts puts it this way. He says, The art of living is neither careless drifting on one hand nor fearful clinging on the other. It consists in being completely sensitive to each moment, in regarding each moment utterly new and unique, in having the mind and the heart open and truly receptive. And when we come and sit in meditation, even for our 35 minutes, it is a way of reminding this the cells of our body, the, the life breath, the mind, that it's possible to drop beneath the praise and blame and gain and loss and all the struggles and to listen in a deeper way with a quiet mind and an open mind, receptive and, a, and an open heart. And as we do, we can feel the difference between unhealthy attachment grasping. I want it to be this way. You know, when you grasp your child, they don't like it. They want to be the way they want to be. You can love them and teach them and so forth, but if you hold on to them, they won't. You'll suffer and they will too. Or your lover, or your money, or your body. I mean, you take care of your body, but I mean, it does what it wants to do. It grows old. Okay. Tell it not to grow old. See if it listens. Ah, yes. The only reason a great many American families don't own an elephant is that they've never been offered an element, elephant for $10 down in easy weekly payments. <laughs> we live in a society which keeps telling us that you can have more and more, that actually attachment and getting stuff is what's going to make you happy. 
We do, you know. And then there are the easy payment plans. And if you're like me, about I get about 10 credit card offers a week in the mail, you know. Here, less interest rate. Why don't you get another credit card and get more in debt, please? Um, you can never get enough of what you don't need to make you happy. Why grab possessions like thieves or divide them like socialists when you can ignore them like wise people? (laughs) So on one hand, you can pay attention in your own life. The more the attachment and grasping, the more the suffering. The letting go means that we also have to let go of the idea that we're in charge so much, that we're in control. As my teacher Ajahn Chah used to say all the time, my nah, it's uncertain, isn't it? What's really going to happen tomorrow? You have some guesses, but my nah, you don't really know. To be enlightened, says the Zen, third Zen ancestor, to be enlightened is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. Say that again, to be enlightened in a moment of enlightenment is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. The world isn't perfect, and it never will be, according to all the Virgos in the room (laughs) and everybody else's idea of how it's supposed to be. It's just not going to fit your idea. It is going to be the way that it is. And to be enlightened is not to be anxious about imperfection. There is a beauty in the heart of any human being, a trust, a confidence in any human being that can let go of grasping and attachment and respect the seasons of life, of gain and loss and praise and blame, and to do what's beautiful, to care for our body, to care for the society, but to see that this is the way that it is. Things come and they go, and there are successes and failures, and to head in the direction of justice and compassion. But if you, even if you get attached to the best of good things, it will be a prison for you. From the Tao Te Ching, the mark of a tolerant wo- uh, woman or man is freedom from their own ideas. Tolerant like the sky, all-pervading like sunlight, firm like a mountain, supple like a tree in the wind, She has no destination in view and makes use of anything life happens to bring her way. Nothing is impossible for her because she has let go. She can greet each day. She can care for the people's welfare as a mother cares for her child, yet her heart remains in the Tao at peace. To let go means to be gracious with life. To live with a wise heart is, somebody asked Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, can you sum up Buddhist teachings? He said, sure, three words. Not always so. Things will be changing, just in a moment, I promise. And to find your composure in in this world of impermanence, says Suzuki Roshi, is to find yourself in nirvana. That freedom, enlightenment, isn't someplace else. It is here, this moment, whenever we let go, whenever we can rest. 
Letting go allows us to love, to trust the unfolding of life, the changing of the seasons. And you know how it is. Sometimes you think something terrible is happening and it's just going to be the end of things. And then it turns out to be different than that. What's that word? An antidromia? Somebody know? Is that right? How do you pronounce it? The word that says when you go through something far enough, you come to its opposite. It's a beautiful word. So Carl Jung used to say that when people came to see him and tell him, oh, they got a big raise or a new job, they were made a manager, they bought this new big house or something, he would just yawn, ho-hum, you know, like, okay, their life's going on. But would someone come and they were fired, you know, or they were in great difficulty or the company closed or, you know, they had a diagnosis of some disease that they had to deal with or some tragedy happened or some difficulty. He said, oh, I got very excited. Huh. Something interesting is happening in this person's life and something important is going to happen on the level of their soul, on the level of their heart, on the level of what really will awaken them. Don't move at this moment, but close your eyes just as you're sitting. You move now. Keep them closed. <laughs> Relaxed. And just a couple of little reflections. What's ending in your life? Relationship, work, whatever it happens to be. What's asking for you to let go? What truth asks for your acceptance and compassion? And what is being born? What asks for your commitment even as things are changing? The steadiness of the heart in the midst of change, O nobly born, let yourself feel this intention, dedication. Breathe. Sense the graciousness that's within you to meet the changes of life with a wise and open heart. courage, strength, and letting go at the same time. Let your eyes open. You know, it's not so easy. You've got your little kid who starts running out in the street and you get frightened and you know you want to discipline them and make sure they don't get hurt. Or you have your basic teenager who's going out to drive late at night and you have to, you know, do every prayer in the book, right? Or all the other kinds of letting go that happen. I mean, I see it when I lead retreats here and people will come and, you know, every possible kind of letting go. My brother died. My, my daughter died. My business failed. What do I do? Um, this happened and now I have to let go of that. And sometimes it's a good letting go the next season of life, but it's still hard. It was in my 53rd year in the 
Plaza Catalunya in Barcelona. I saw a young woman open her hands as if cupped for water. They were filled with seed, and birds flocked to her in her palms, on her arms, on her shoulders, and she threw her head back and laughed. It broke me to realize that for all the want and fear and will, this is how we make our peace. If brave enough or broken enough, we stand in the open with our cupped heart full of dreams and sufferings, full of loves gone right and long, open to the spirit. It was in my 53rd year that I understood this world feeds on our dreams and our sorrows and our loves. It feeds on the opening of our heart and frees us to love again and again. To let go is an intuitive art, an instinctive art. Nobody can really tell you this is how you let go, how you open your fingers. Well, how do you, you know how to do it. It's natural. And, and if your hand's always open, it's not useful to anything, is it? If it's always closed, it's not useful either. It has to be able to open and close. And in the same way, we know it in our body. We know it in the right moment what it means to let go. A story I haven't read for a while from a letter to an insurance company. In response to your request for additional information in block number three of the accident reporting form, I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. (laughs) You said in your letter I should explain more fully. Dear sirs, I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a (coughs) new three-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered I had 500 pounds of brick left over. Rather than carry them down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel using a pulley attached to the side of the building. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the brick into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. (laughs) Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the second floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my ascent, stopping when the fingers of my right knuckles were deep in the pulley. Fortunately, at this time, I had regained enough presence of mind to know that this was not the time to let go of the rope. At approximately this moment, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rather rapid descent down the side of the building. This explains the two fractured ankles. I hope this is sufficient for you. So letting go <clears throat> is a bit of an art, it would seem. And each of our lives has this amazing plot, the unexpected turns and the amazement of birth and death and joy and sorrow and changes that we couldn't have predicted. And 
what we can trust as we practice, as we learn in our sitting and walking meditation in our spiritual life, is the graciousness of the heart. Well, we started again this, this being human as a guest house, treat each guest honorably, the ability to let go and still stay true to the deepest of our values, uh, to trust the strength of heart to be <coughs> present for this life with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows as they are, to trust what Martin Luther King said, our capacity to endure the sufferings of the world with dignity, with nobility. For there is, as the Buddha says in the First Noble Truth, there is loss and aging and death and suffering. It's part of the game. And it's not something that you've done wrong. And there is also freedom for each of us. And this freedom is a love and a letting go. And love is not a weakness. It is the ultimate strength. It is the great gift. The great courage. It's the unarmed truth of the heart. And it's what makes us happy. And when we learn to let go, there comes instead a trust in the Tao or the spirit that pushes green plants up through the cracks in the sidewalk and holds 250,000 new human babies that are born on the earth every day, and cooks and builds and loves and sows and plants and breathes us. I mean, you don't breathe yourself, do you? It does it to us. And something great moves through us as we learn to let go. You could call it love or the Dharma, the awakened heart, freedom. It's a wonderful thing. So letting go doesn't mean a lack of commitment or integrity or courage. It asks a tremendous courage and a tremendous willingness to love in the midst of all things. And yet it is possible for us, wherever we are. Little last advice. I wouldn't coax the plant if I were you. Such watchful nurturing may do it harm. Let the soil rest from so much digging and wait until it's dry before you water it. The leaf's inclined to find its own direction. Give it a chance to seek the sunlight for itself. Much growth is stunted by too careful prodding, too eager tenderness. The things we love we also have to learn to leave alone and let grow in their own season. Naomi Magic. Hmm. So beautiful seeds, water them in your personal life, bring them out into the garden of the world, it really needs it. And trust that they will grow, because that's the law of the universe, that when you plant a mango seed or an apple seed, you get an apple tree or a mango tree. Plant beautiful seeds from your heart. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
donate.